this is our livelihood. And if we're not taking care of our livestock, if we're not taking care of the land, we're not in business. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. His parents worked nine to five jobs and he grew up on a tiny farm in Western Oregon, but he always wanted to be a full-time rancher. Now Pete Cherrier is getting to live that dream and he explains how it all happened and how passionate he is about the beef that he produces in Pomeroy, Washington. I'm Dylan Honkoop. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Thanks for being here with us this week as we continue on our journey all over Washington state to get to know the real people behind our food. You haven't always been somebody producing food. No, I have not. So how, how did you become a food producer? And it's beef is primarily what you produce, right? Beef is our primary focus or my primary focus, but a little, I guess a little backstory. I grew up in a little town. Well, it's not so little anymore, but about 40 miles southwest of Portland, Oregon. I grew up in the Willamette Valley on, I guess what most people call a hobby farm. Yeah. We had 15 acres. We had a handful of cows. I was always fascinated with livestock when I was young, did 4-H in high school, yeah. got out, decided that, you know, where I lived in the Willamette Valley, there wasn't going to be many opportunities for me to make a living yeah. in the beef industry. It's just not possible. I mean, there's just constraints. I didn't have the land. I didn't have the infrastructure, didn't have the capital to go out on my own. So I spent about the next 20 years, just like a lot of people in the labor force, I kind of tell everybody I'm a jack-of-all-trades, master mm -hmm. of none. 2009, I uh, met my wife at a bull sale in California. My wife's from a little town in southeast Washington called Pomeroy. Had no idea where that was. <laughs> like, she uh, started naming towns. And when we got to Walla Walla, I was like, I knew where Walla Walla was. And she's like, we're about 90 miles east of that. So we uh, actually dated for three years. We commuted up and down the Columbia Gorge on I-84 for three years. So it's those cowgirls. Yes. And you ran into a cowgirl. Yeah, I ran into a cowgirl. Couldn't, couldn't stay away. No. I like to think she couldn't stay away from me. <laughs> there you go. But we commuted for three years, and then in 2012, I kind of made the choice that I was at a point in my life that if I was going to move forward with our relationship and the opportunity arose to, to move to Pomeroy, and there was a place for me on the on her family ranch. My wife's a fifth generation producer, wow, which is very cool. And I made the leap, and I moved to Washington in 2012, and that was my opportunity to kind of live my childhood dream. I get to be, I don't want to say I'm a cowboy because I ride very poorly. <laughs> I'm not very handy with the rope, but it's my opportunity to yeah. be a cattleman and make my living mm -hmm. off something that I've been passionate about my whole life. But now is the opportunity to turn that passion into a, a living. So how did, I guess, before I forget, what what were you, what kind of work were you doing in that time? You say you were just in the workforce. Like what kind so of work? I, at one point, I was in the construction business. I had yeah. a company where I was a finished carpenter. I did some carpentry. I've done roofing. I've done framing. I got to the point in my life, I'm like, this is going to ruin my body. Mm -hmm. So I got into warehouse management. Mm -hmm. So before I moved to Washington, I uh, managed a fireworks warehouse. Really? Which is That's really random. Yeah. I needed a job. I got laid off from a previous job. They were downsizing their workforce. I went to a temp service. I said, I need work. I yeah. need to pay my bills. Yeah. And they sent me to this company, and I was there for about three years. Honestly, I worked four months out of the year, probably May through August, 
we sent the fireworks out. We returned the fireworks. And if the guy that I worked for heard this, he'd be appalled. But like eight months out of the year, I played ping pong <laughs> with the sales guys. <laughs> so... Yeah, then, I was wondering about that. Like, there, I don't know. I guess people, maybe some people buy fireworks for New Year's, but yeah. otherwise, there's not a whole lot of the fireworks. Yeah, thing. it's yeah. Uh, okay. Were these all the safe and sane no, fireworks? No, this, oh, this was really? the good stuff. <laughs> we had the stuff that you know you miss the fingers if you mishandle. To, goes to the, yeah. like the the tribal outlets. Yeah, and whatnot. this yeah. is the stuff you shoot at your neighbors when you're upset with them. <laughs> so. But wow. like I said, I've so that that's a place where you don't mess around no, probably that, in the warehouse. No, you don't do anything that's going to create. No, any kind I wasn't of spark. lighting up a Marlboro in the warehouse. I promise you that. <laughs> Good grief! <laughs> oh, that's wild. So you're doing all this stuff, but you were doing practical stuff. Too. I was doing like practical physical stuff. labor with yep. the construction. Yeah, and I'd always kind of stayed involved, kind of peripherally with with the cattle industry, mm-hmm. either through friends that were running cows or. About 1998, 1999, I met an older gentleman, and he gave me the opportunity to kind of get into the purebred or purebred side of the the cattle industry with some Red Angus cattle, and kind of mentored me. Mm. And he's the one that likes to take credit for introducing me to my wife because he knew my wife before I knew her. And apparently, the running joke between my friend Merle and my wife Sammy was he was going to find her a nice husband. And I don't know if he succeeded. He found her a <laughs> husband, but that's always been the well, running joke. He must joke. think you're all right. He's he's been a blessing. Like to, he's the guy that kind of renewed my passion. I mean, it was always there, yeah. but to give me the opportunity. Well, that's fascinating. Like you said, you're a kid basically on a hobby farm. Yeah. Which really, what you're describing back then was a hobby farm. Yeah. Now hobby farms are probably that much tinier. Yeah. Than even that. But that's interesting because you grew up technically kind of around farming and animals yeah. and all that. It wasn't a mystery to you. And no. you wanted to do it, but you couldn't do it because it's not easy, especially it's, when you don't have family background with, yeah. you know, I mean, what what did your yeah. folks do? My mother was a secretary at our local senior center. Hmm. And my dad was president of an oil and asphalt company. Hmm. So my parents both had nine to five jobs. Yep. We had 15 acres. We had 15 to 18 cows, just mostly to keep things eight down around the place. Mm-hmm. My sister and I were involved in 4-H. That kept us out of trouble, I suppose. So that's kind of what fueled the passion. But, right. you know, it's a problem that even now, like, we have young producers. It's a challenge. Like, I admire, I think you had Kyler Beard on your podcast previously. Yeah. That's a yeah. man that started from nothing. Yeah. And that's the biggest challenge we have with these young producers is you don't have the infrastructure. You don't have land. Like, how do you make it work? Like, my wife and I are very blessed that her family has land. They've got resources that are available to us. If we had to start from scratch and didn't have her family's land and some of these resources that are available to us, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking to you right now. Like, I'd probably still be trying not to blow myself up in a fireworks (laughs) warehouse. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the sad part, too, because there are so many people like you who have had at least a taste of it when they were young and realized they have a passion there, but they can't realize that. Yeah. And those are the people that we want growing our food. Exactly. But they can't get there. No, and that's, I. you know, there's so few of us that do it, which is really what makes me proud about not only what I do, but what the ag community does. Because I read stats the other day in 1840, 70% of the population was involved in agriculture. 
you wow. jumped to 1920, it had dropped to 30% of your nationwide in the U.S. Mm-hmm. was involved in agriculture. And then I just looked up before this, because I'm just curious where we've come in the last 100 years. Yeah. There's 330 million people in the U.S. right now, and 1.3% of us are farmers or ranchers. I mean, 1.3% of the population is basically feeding the United States. I mean, that's pretty mind-boggling and a pretty cool stat. It's scary, too. It is. Because it puts everything on a pretty tight tipping point. And it does. And it's scary when you look at the aging population in the ranching and the farming community. Yeah. And lots of younger adults, they're going to college. They're getting a great education. And they're realizing maybe seven days a week, 12-hour <laughs> day, that's not for them. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Like, And there's a lot of, like, it's a gamble. To get yeah. into that world. It is gambling. You're gambling with the weather. You're gambling with the markets. You're ga- gambling with what are the rules going to be yeah. this year or next year. All these things. And for a lot of people, that's more than they can handle. But there are still people like you who want to do it. And that's the other thing that's causing this aging population of farmers, I think. Yeah. is because there are young people who want to do it but can't get in. Yeah. And there's opportunities. I, I, I think there's opportunities for some of these younger producers they can go to some of these older producers, a lot of these older folks that are like, we're wanting to slow down. And there's opportunities yeah. that for some of these younger guys that maybe they can go lease some ground from yep. a producer. Maybe he's wanting to reduce his, his cow herd or his flock or whatever. And there's opportunities. But I think you have to be a little bit aggressive in pursuing those. They just don't fall in your yep. lap. Well, and that's where maybe some people yeah, – if somebody's listening to this and has that latent desire to get into ag, maybe grew up around it but can't do it now, maybe just ask that question. Yeah. Be bold. Yeah. And and go. I remember talking with Josh Stewart, uh, you know, wheat farmer yeah. over near Harrington. And that was the same thing. He just he grew up around it, but his family wasn't directly in it himself or themselves. Yeah. But they finally, they found a couple that was aging. The family didn't want to continue mm-hmm. on the farm. And they had the guts to talk to them and say, hey, would you consider this? And they said, absolutely. How can we help you get into this? And they helped them do it. I, I've always said fortune favors the bold. Yeah. So just what you said, there's opportunities out there. If somebody's willing to put themselves out there yeah. and ask. Because yeah. the worst that somebody can tell you, in my opinion, is no. Yeah. And you never know unless you ask. Is it going to be easy? No. no. Is it going to be worth it? Yeah. Could it fail? Absolutely. Yeah. But so could anything else yeah. you do. It doesn't matter what you do. Like, you know, you got I laid mean, off, right? Yeah, I've been laid off. Like, failure, like, that's, you know, it's almost inevitable. And if you're not doing anything, well, you're not going to fail. Right. But then if you're, you're out doing there nothing. doing something, <laughs> chances are you're going to fail at some point in your life. Yeah. And it's what you do after you fail, in my opinion. Are you going to get yourself back up? Are yeah. you going to accept that, you know, you failed, I'm going to learn from my lessons, and yeah. I'm going to move forward? Or are you just going to lay there? Yeah. Well, that's not an option. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not a quitter. Yeah. So talk about how, what was it like getting into uh, You meet this girl. And by the way, why were you at a bull sale? You, you weren't in the farming world. So, you already told us that. So the guy that you just mentored couldn't stay me, away. It no, was that childhood it stuff. It was that childhood <laughs> desire to be around the livestock community. Yeah. And the guy that mentored me in the purebred cattle business, we used to go to sale in Red Bluff, California. We'd take bulls down there to market. And she happened to be stalled next to us. And I was like, oh, 
she's cute. <laughs> I said, I might as well strike up a conversation. Yeah. I'm here for a week. I might yeah. as well make a new friend. And yeah. we kind of hung out for a week. You know, I, I actually took her out to dinner the first while. Well, I won't say I took her out. We went to dinner with a group of mutual friends. And she was oblivious to the fact that I was maybe hitting on her. And I was maybe interested no. right she, over her head. Her radar was like, oh, bing, bing, bless bing, her naive guy's, heart. This guy is going yeah. after me. Oh, she's she grew up in a small town. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking a class of 30 students, I <laughs> yeah, think. Yeah. Bless her naive heart. She just didn't realize it, which she's yeah, Otherwise, you would have gotten kicked to the curb right yeah, away. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if she had any clue, she'd have been like, oh, we're done with this. But, you know, it was uh, it was an eye-opener Yeah. when I got the opportunity to go work for her family and work with her because, you know, I grew up on 15 acres. Her family has 10,000 acres. Right. I went from 15 cows, and if you combine, her family runs about... Anywhere between 450 and 500 commercial cows. Mm-hmm. Sammy and I run about close to 200 purebred cows of our own. So to go from 15 cows and 15 acres as, as a kid <laughs> to six, 700 cows and 10,000 yep. acres, big jump, very eye-opening. But that's another factor that people need to realize. I'm just realizing this as you're saying it. You have to do that to be able to support a family and continue on a multi-generational farm. Exactly. The 15 cows on 15 acres, you wouldn't, be able sustainable. To, you wouldn't be able to support yourself. No, right? you couldn't make a living off that. Yeah. There's no way. So yeah. it's, and like I said, it's, it's been an eye-opening adventure. Like I was a Kawasaki cowboy when I came from the Willamette Valley. We did everything on a four-wheeler. Yeah. I had a pony when I was little. She was rotten. Didn't like her. <laughs> but now we do a lot on horseback. We do a wow. lot with dogs. I old mean, school. It's, it's very old school. It's very rewarding. Like, how many people can say they do that? How many people can say they get yeah. to go up in the morning and put a saddle on a horse and go ride through some of the most gorgeous country you've ever seen? I mean, it's just awe-inspiring. So why do you still use animals for that? Why don't you use a four-wheeler or a side-by-side? So if anybody's ever been to the far southeast corner of Washington, we're about, I tell people, we're 90 miles east of Walla Walla, about 60 miles south of Pullman. So we're kind of in the Snake River breaks. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of country you can't get to on a four-wheeler. Really? I've so tried. It's that steep. There's a couple four wheelers sitting in our junk pile because I've tried to go places I shouldn't have. But it's a necessity. It's, Glad you're alive. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> I'm too dumb to get hurt. So, <laughs> right. But, you know, cattle, you know, they graze the hills. They go down into these canyons. They go to places you can't get with four wheelers. So, dogs and horses are tools, and they're yeah. great tools for what we do, you know? I would imagine it's better because you're working with animals with animals, too. Yeah, it's probably a calm. It thing. is. And the, the amount, of, there's amount of a, I guess it'd be almost trust. Like, it's a lot easier to ride up to a group of cows on a horse because they kind of like, oh, it's got four legs. Yep. They're a little more accepting sometimes. but Quiet. We, they are. We work really hard on the ranch, and I, I give my father-in-law a lot of credit, and I give my wife a lot of credit on teaching me some of these, I guess, low-stress cattle handling techniques. We work really hard. And what does that mean, low-stress? It, it means we're not, there's not a yell, lot of yelling. It's yeah. we're moving slow. We're being quiet. I've learned how you can use pressure to move cattle. If you stand in the right place, they'll just move naturally. And it's so you don't have to yell at them and stress them out. You don't have out. to yell at them. Like no, we want our animals to be happy because at the end of the day, those are our livelihood. 
And I think that's a big misconception some people have is they've watched Yellowstone, which if you want to lose yourself for an hour, that's great. But it is absolutely the worst depiction of how ranching works. Well, break that down. What, what, when you watch Yellowstone as a real rancher, what do you see? That's when wrong. I when I watch an episode of Yellowstone, and they're out there, and this cow is having trouble having a baby, so they're going to pull the calf. Well, they get the cow, they pull the calf, and thirty seconds later, the calf's up and running across the pasture. <laughs> At 20 miles an hour. <laughs> just little things like that. Like you just It is amazing how quick they'll stand yeah, up, but it, is, it ain't that fast. But it's fast. not that fast. You just got to be able to suspend reality is all for yeah. an hour of your well, week. Well, and what about cattle handling? On Just full disclosure, I haven't watched a ton of that show. I've just seen little snippets here and there. Never sat down for a full episode because my life's too busy to watch yeah. TV. But when they're handling cattle, that they it seems like... And this is probably the whole Hollywood element. They try to play that up. You know, it's it's kind of rough. It's yeah. yelling and... There's a lot of yelling and a lot yeah. of hee-haw and whatnot. And I mean, of all Guys the things, maybe that's a little... <laughs> That's a little closer to reality sometimes when they're moving the cattle and you see those things when they're working cattle on horseback sometimes. Yeah. Maybe a little closer to reality. Yeah. But... Not exactly. Just a quick time out from our conversation to thank our sponsors here on the podcast. It wouldn't happen without their help. The Dairy Farmers of Washington, for one, supporting the podcast. Um, and you can check them out online. Wadairy.org is their website. Um, they've got tons of information about the people who produce real dairy here in Washington State. And uh, recipes and stories about sustainability. You name it. They have it, including a virtual farm tour. Again, wadairy.org is the website. Check them out and thank them for supporting these conversations in this podcast. Also, Washington Red Raspberries supporting the podcast. A big, huge thank you to those folks as they continue to produce some of the best raspberries anywhere in the world. And I say that as somebody who grew up uh, growing with my dad, with my family, growing red raspberries. Also want to say thank you to Mana Insurance Group. Um, They're all about planning ahead to protect your financial future. Think about it. That's what insurance actually is. And that's what they're all about. They're not just some company saying that, though. They were founded by a high school classmate of mine. I know them, I know him and a lot of the people on their team. So they're good folks. I trust them. That's where I do my insurance. They take great care of me. And uh, I suggest them highly to you as well. Manainsurancegroup.com is their website. Um, They sell insurance here in Washington State as well as in California and Arizona now. So check them out online, manainsurancegroup.com. Now back to our conversation with Pete Cherrier about uh, farming cattle in steep terrain um, with real horses, real grazing, uh, old-fashioned grazing practices in Pomeroy, Washington. So not having, I mean, you had some background in it because you'd had cattle as a kid, yeah. just a few, and you'd been around your mentor yes. who taught you a lot about it. Mm-hmm. But then jumping in both feet, going to Pomeroy yeah. and working on the ranch, what was that like? It, I, I'd be scared. I mean, not only because I'd feel like I don't know all the things that these people know. I don't want to make an idiot out of myself. Yeah. But also, like, what about the dynamics there? You know, what what if this isn't working with family? That's a farming thing, but it can be hard. You don't want to, I mean, you have to fight with your family. You can't just clock out and go home. The same people you eat supper with. I tell everybody all the time, we put the fun in dysfunctional. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, and it is hard. Like I work with my spouse most days we're side by side. Yeah. And when we have a bad day and I'm grouchy, <laughs> we go home together. Yeah. But it was it was an eye opener. Like I the learning curve for me was really steep. I mean, I knew the basics of animal husbandry, mm-hmm. but not on that scale. And once again, I give a lot of credit to to Sammy and my father-in-law Sam. They're the kind of people that they don't just tell you go do this. There's a lot of, this is why we do it. And I learned so much better. And I, there's still a lot of things that they're way better at. And if I can check my ego and realize they've been doing this their whole life. Yeah. This is all they know as a living. Yeah. I've been doing it for 10 years. So I try not to get too butthurt. (laughs) I guess is the term (laughs) that came to mind. Yeah. And I've got to check my ego and realize, you know, they know more than me. And once you accept that fact, I've tried to find my niche. I try to find what I'm good at, what I can bring to the table. And I just try to go with that. Like, I don't try to step on toes because we all kind of have our own little roles on the operation. You know, we're father-in-law is trying to scale back a little bit, trying yeah. to turn over some more of the uh, day-to-day operations to Sammy and I. And it's, uh, I keep on saying eye-opening because I don't know how else to describe it. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of science to it. But there's art there too is. as well, right? There is. And that's, you know, my wife's got a degree in animal science. She went to school with that. She actually was thought at one point she was going to be a vet. Mm-hmm. And then organic chemistry ruined that dream. And she realized <laughs> she wasn't going to be a vet. And I think now she's very thankful. But there's yeah. a lot of things that she does that we don't have to utilize a vet for a lot of these little things because her and my father-in-law can take care of them. And those aren't things I'm good at. I'm not good at putting my arm in that cow yeah. when she's having a calving problem. And there should be four legs in there, and there's eight. Yeah. I'm not going to untangle that mess. Yeah, what's going on? That's just beyond my capability. So. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about it. You know, a lot of animal cattle farmers, whether it's in dairy or in beef, you kind of have to be a cow OBGYN. You do. I like that. That's a great term. <laughs> right? Like, you, you've you got to know a little about a lot. I mean, be it, you know, nutrition or animal health or genetics, breeding decisions. I mean, there's so many things that come into play. And if you don't get all those little things aligned just right, it feels like it's not as successful. When all the stars align and you've got a live calf, and then six months later, you're weaning that calf, and it's a nice big 750-pound calf. You're like, we did it right. We picked yeah. the right bull to breed to that cow. We fed that cow right so she could grow that calf. I mean, it's rewarding to see that calf in January hit the ground, and then when we ship calves and we sell them in September or October, November, it's really rewarding to see that. Like, I did that. Yeah. How many people can say that? Yeah. What should people know about their beef? I what? mean, for one, beef is like, oh, well, for well, since this, what was it? started probably in the 70s yeah. and 80s and 90s. We were yeah. told beef is bad. And more recently, yeah. it's like it's bad for the climate and all these things. Yeah. And really recently, the numbers are starting to come out that say maybe there's more to the story yeah. than that. I just, well, don't believe everything that AOC and her cronies tell you. Like, <laughs> beef is good for the environment. That's my biggest story. Is How like, so? What else can upcycle like a cow? Like cow takes, I mean, we use ground that's unfarmable. Hmm. We so couldn't it, grow veggies. We there. couldn't grow wheat or corn or anything on that ground. It's unusable ground other than for grazing. 
and we turn that cow out there, she's eating that grass. She's sequestering carbon. She's mm-hmm. providing, at the end of the day, we're going to get something nutritious out of her. We're going to get the best protein on the planet out of her. We're going to get, or her calf, I guess, technically. Mm-hmm. But we're going to get hamburgers. We're going to get steaks. I mean, what's better? Like, if you don't enjoy a good steak, a good ribeye, if that doesn't make your mouth water, <laughs> I feel sorry for you. I don't know how to say that. Like, And I, and I probably to my father-in-law's horror, I eat chicken. I eat pork. <laughs> I love fish coming from the Willamette yeah. Valley, but yeah. I like my number one source of protein. Yeah. You know, my father-in-law will tell you, you know, we got to keep it, you know, equal. So, you know, we should eat one hog, one chicken, and one beef a year. Yeah. And, you know. There you go. But, like, I guess I want people to understand, like, my livelihood, my wife's family's livelihood is not sustainable if we don't take care of the land. And we don't take care of our animals. Like farmers and ranchers are the original environmentalists. Mm. I mean, because if we don't take care of our land, we're out of business. We're the ones that are creating habitat for wildlife. We're improving water. We we can get it. I mean, I go down the rabbit hole on fires. Like we run on public land, which a lot of people are opposed to. But, you know, just so people know, it comes with a cost. We just don't take our cows and dump them on the mountains and go get them in four months. Right. You manage but them. We manage them. And even up there, we're managing water for the wildlife. We're creating trails. We're sawing out trails. We're fixing water holes. We're grazing is a great tool for fire suppression. Yeah. Because they eat all that smaller undergrowth. Yeah, they do. That's the stuff that burns and That's, that kills the trees. And look in a lot of these states like California, where they've had restrictions on some of these grazing. Yeah. And look at the catastrophic fires these last couple of years in the Western United States. Yeah. Grazing is a great tool. To, it's not the be-all, end-all. It's not going to end yeah. all the fires, but it sure helps. Yeah. Why wouldn't we be a fan of that? Why aren't we doing that? I remember talking about that with Kyler. Yeah. like they, He was actually deliberately working on that for yeah. fire suppression yeah. along the highway. I can't remember. I think it was along Highway 97 yeah. over there by Ellensburg. Absolutely. Where they would take a chunk here and take a chunk yeah. there and deliberately kind of, okay, we're going to clean that up. Yeah. And it's with a natural system, an animal grazing. It's not going in with a weed yeah. eater or a brush hog or a chainsaw or any of that stuff you're not taking a a d7 cat you're not taking a backhoe you're not it's happening naturally and why it happens naturally we're producing protein food we're producing food we're feeding the world yeah how cool is that you also said sequestering carbon and i've read and learned a lot about that that i didn't know even just a few years ago but maybe I shouldn't just assume, like, explain that. How a cow out on this steep terrain that you couldn't really use for anything else other than maybe growing trees, which probably is happening anyway in some spots. They're grazing around the trees. Silvopasture is this yeah. big thing that people are getting into, yeah. recognizing the benefit of that. And part of that is sequestering carbon. How does that actually happen? What's the cycle? So I'm going to be honest. I'm not 100% up to date on that. Okay. So I... Try very hard not to speak on things that yeah, I am not I confident that. that I can explain intelligently to anybody <laughs> that might be listening to me ramble on this podcast. Okay. I've Kyler Beard's kind of a guy that I'm starting to learn a little more from. I, yeah. I work with Kyler on the uh, Washington Beef Commission. Yeah, he's a guy that is, and he doesn't give himself enough credit. Yeah, like I think Kyler's very much a ah shucks, golly gee whiz guy. 
Yeah. And then when you get he's, he's when you humble. get him to open up, holy smokes. There's a lot going on up there. That guy is so smart. And yep. he's one of those guys, like, if you ever want to know how to sequester carbon, he's going to be the one that's going to explain it in terms that even my grandmother could understand. Yeah. So... That's awesome. There's my speech on, you know, trying not to talk yeah. about things I don't fully understand. <laughs> no, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's where you can't know everything all the time either. Once but you, you can s- lean on the, yeah. the knowledge that somebody like Kyler yeah. has and say, okay, that makes sense. And then it can influence how you're managing well, your operation. We learn every day. Once you stop learning, I think, yeah. you know, it's dangerous. I think I think the most dangerous words in the English language are "This is the way we've always done it." This <laughs> yeah. is the way my grandfather did it. This is the way I've done yeah. it. I think that's just a mindset that's defeatist almost. Do you think there's a, a a perception though that that's how farming and ranching works? I think there's a perception. Yeah, I think that's how a lot of people in our urban communities probably think that we're still running cattle or we're still farming like we did a hundred years ago. And they don't realize how much technology has evolved. Like we yeah. have, well, I guess probably 3,000 acres of dryland wheat mm. that we farm. And the amount of technology, thankfully, my brother-in-law is the farmer in the family. Yeah. He, he understands the technology. But it's come a long ways just from, like, how much fertilizer do I put down to how do I run this satellite so I can put in my wheat yeah. and harvest. There's just... We've evolved so much, and yeah. I don't think. But at the same time, keeping the things about the old ways that are good. Yeah. Still working animals, yeah. moving animals with horses. There's that's a lot of tradition. That seems old west. Yeah. But there, that has been something that's valuable. I mean, yeah. okay, yeah, you could, some places they do it with helicopters or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you realize that there's a value to that old-fashioned yeah. way of doing things. Yeah. So you do that. But. At the same time, your perspective on veterinary medicine is I, a lot different than when they first were. Yeah, <laughs> well, I think it's a blend horses. of both. I think yeah. it's it's a blend of old school, which is really appealing, and it's kind of a romantic lifestyle, I guess some people would say, when yeah. you get a ride off into the sunset on your horse. I mean, yeah. but there's so much, and it's constantly evolving. I mean, animal husbandry. And, you know, that's the other thing I want people to know is, like, the beef we're producing is safe. Like that's, I'm one of those people I'll talk to a fence post and I'm one of those guys that nobody wants to sit by on an airplane. Cause I want to talk. Yeah. And I ask that's people all the too. time. I'm like, <laughs> I usually, I'm like, I lead off with, well, I'll just start a conversation and I'm always, do you eat beef? And a lot of times people are like, well, that's a weird question. Sure, I eat a hamburger. But I've had some yeah. conversations with people. And like, I was on a flight to Calgary a couple of weeks ago, and the gal's like, I don't eat beef. I eat buffalo. I eat bison. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I guess that's kind of beef. And I'm like, well, why are, do you not prefer beef? Like, what, what changed your mindset? Like, why do you prefer bison? And we got into the weeds. And she's like, and big part of it is like, while well, you guys pump your cattle full of drugs and antibiotics and hormones, mm. and that's not healthy. And I'm like, well, can we have this conversation? I said, you know, take out of it what you will, but let's talk. Let me tell you from my perspective, yeah. somebody that's making a living off this, these cattle, said, here's how it really works. Yeah. And that's like, I'm the biggest advocate for the beef industry because there's just so many misconceptions and 
So you guys aren't pumping your animals full of chemicals and antibiotics? No, absolutely. <laughs> I just, I tell people, if you have children, when your children are sick, do you just let them suffer or do you give them some Tylenol? Right. Do you do something to alleviate their symptoms? Do you make them more comfortable? And that's all we're doing with the cattle. Yeah. That's what's sad to me about that conversation. Because on one hand, there's this perception, like you said, pumping them full of chemicals. Yeah. Or the alternative is none of that at all. Yeah. It's like, well, how's that? That's cruel to the animal. Well, like if they're sick yeah. Healthy and they livestock. need an antibiotic, yeah. they can take it. Yeah. They can't be butchered and go into yeah. the system when they have. No. And, and everybody's taking an antibiotic. Yeah. Multiple times in their um, life, probably. Yeah. And they realize that's not in their body forever no. then. Yeah. Healthy <laughs> livestock's happy livestock. And there is yeah. a withdrawal period. Like, it's federally mandated. Like, when you we administer a shot and we're giving them a vaccine, like, it says right on the bottle. And it tells you, you know, these cannot enter the food chain for 90 days, 120 mm -hmm. days, 45 days. Yep. It tells you right there. So I just argue all the time, like, I don't think people understand yeah. the amount of time and effort we put into producing a really safe, yeah. nutritious protein. You know what's interesting? In, in my mind, I don't know this for sure. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Maybe I'm violating your rule of saying <laughs> stuff that I don't really know about. But, but from what I've seen... Bison that people eat is raised really in a lot of ways the same way as beef. From what Managed, little I've known, yeah. Moved. And if they're sick, yeah, they're going to give them medicine. Yeah. And they're going to get them better and they're going to yeah. keep them happy and they're going to give them the food that they need and the yeah. good nutrition and all. Yeah. But that perception there, someone is yeah. making a different. And they are. And I just choice. tell people all the time, I like flavor. Like if you want to eat a bison or an elk or a deer, that's good on you. Mm -hmm. I like flavor. Yeah. I like that marbling. And where does marbling come from? It comes from we're feeding them grain and we're mm. feeding them. Oh, there's another hay. topic. There's this grass fed thing versus grain fed. Yeah. My understanding is no cow, no cat. Cattle aren't fed grain their whole lives. Most of their life, they're fed grass regardless. Mm -hmm. But some are finished on grass and some are finished yeah. with grain. And my stance on that has always been I don't care. As long as you're eating beef and you're supporting my industry and my livelihood, if you want to eat grass-fed beef, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I like a little flavor. Mm -hmm. So well, I don't mind People would say the grass-fed is a flavor. That's a flavor that they like. It's a different flavor for yeah. sure. And maybe as a slightly different nutritional profile. Yeah. But I talked with a relative of mine who was a very accomplished uh, nutritionist, certified. He's like, the actual difference in the you know, chemical, you know, the chemistry yeah. of the food, the nutritional yeah. elements are so Minute. similar. If you want to do that, yeah. that's great. But don't think that one or the other is far superior or inferior. Yeah. Just eat a steak. Yeah. I don't care yeah. if it grew up in, you know, your backyard in Stanwood, Washington, <laughs> or it came from my place in Eastern Washington. Like yeah. just support the people that are supporting you. Cause you know, I like to get out in the weeds and all us ranchers, we're supporting our local businesses. We're going to town, yeah. we're buying stuff from the local hardware store, yeah. we're buying fuel from our co-op. So eat beef and support us. Pretty simple. So you mentioned that you are connected with the Beef Commission. Yeah. Explain what is that and how does that work? So I am very new to the Beef Commission here in Washington, but basically mm -hmm. the Beef Commission is promoting the beef industry within the state of Washington. And I tell people, it doesn't mean we're telling you you got to eat a steak. A big part of 
what we do is telling our story because mm. research has shown like consumers want to know where their food comes from. Yeah. They want to know my story. They want to know everybody's story. Like, how are these animals raised? How do you take care of your land? Are you a steward of the land? Are your animals humanely handled? Yeah. And that's a big part of what the Washington Beef Commission does. It's mm. comprised of a, there's two cow-calf guys, which would be myself and Kyler Beard. We've got two dairy farmers on it. We've got mm. a packer. We've got two people from the feedlot, so the feeders are represented. So we've got a really good cross-section of people within the industry here in the state of Washington. A lot of smart people I'm learning on the commission. Yeah. But I really think this is a great way to give back to my community. Yeah. Like be at the ranching community, be my neighbors, because we don't have time as individuals always to tell our story. Well, and the way those things work, correct me if I'm wrong, is basically people growing a, a certain category of food. And I know this because my dad was involved with the Red Raspberry Commission. Yeah. That's what he grew. And so I, I learned this from a young age. Is like, okay, everybody growing raspberries decides we're basically going to tax ourselves. Yeah to do research mm -hmm. and marketing of the stuff that we're growing. So yeah. everyone shares that equally yeah. based on what they produce. Right? I'd say that's very fair. And, it, and the nice thing about the Washington Beef Commission is it's producer-driven. Like it's That's why we've got such a good representation is we've got the dairy guys being able to give their input. We've got the feeders being able to give input. And we have an extremely talented staff at the Washington Beef Commission. I mean, from... Patty Brumbaugh is our executive, yeah. down to Jackie Medill. We've got Bridget Kuhn, who handles all our, our what is that, digital media. Yeah. Boy, I yeah. blanked out there. Hey, we've had her on the podcast. We've oh, jeez. Kyler on the podcast. Is Austin Allred on? Yes, there? he's, he's on our guy. Oh, that guy is. So we've had him on the podcast. Oh, my goodness. That guy is next level smart. Is, it, is he not going 100 miles an hour all day, every day? I, if I had half of Austin's <laughs> energy, I could change the world. I'm convinced. <laughs> right. Yeah, those are all just. I mean, that shows you right there how bright these people are on this commission. Yeah, I mean, there's so many good people in our industry, and that's that's. I'm constantly banging that drum, like we're good people, we're doing God's work. Like 1.3 percent of us are feeding the United States. Yeah. It's pretty mind-boggling, in my opinion. Yeah. So what's the future? You're gonna. This is this is it. This is this your life. Is, this is my life. Somebody asked the other day, you know, what my retirement plan is. I said, well, I guess I'm just going to work till I'm too old to enjoy it. <laughs> and then I've told my wife, when I get too old to do what we're doing right now, my goal is to go someplace warm, mm -hmm. sandy beach, and wear shorts for the rest of my life. <laughs> there you go. So hashtag life goals. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not like, oh, you know, in a couple of years, if yeah, the profitability isn't quite what we want, then no. we're just going to bail. No. Like you're, you have more invested. Into Always, this as yeah. Far as your no, life. it's it's not that easy. <laughs> like it's yeah. it's a commitment, and you you ride the highs and you ride the lows, and yeah. it's a roller coaster. It's like emotionally yeah. a roller coaster. Which this is me getting on a bit of a tangent, but I. Firm believer, like, I've never understood why farmers and ranchers are so proud of the fact that I haven't taken a day off in 12 years. I've yeah. worked seven days a week for the last 12 years. I'm like, you know, it's not talked about in the ag community. 
Yeah. But mental health is so, so important. Absolutely. And that's not healthy to be under that kind of pressure. And it's not. 24-7, like, 365. Like it or not, there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And like I said, you know, when, when the good's good, it's great. But when the bad's, you know, there's some lows in this industry, you know. You, you go have a calf that was born. Like I can think of one last year that I went to check our cows. We had a kind of a freak snowstorm. I found a calf. He was cold. You know, we did everything to, you know, we brought him into the barn. We warmed him up. We, we gave him electrolytes. We did everything we could do. But you don't always win the battle. Mm. And it's like, it's an emotional investment when you're like, yeah. you try so hard for your livestock because they provide me with a living. Yeah. And to have one pass away you you lose one it's i think some people think we just take it for granted yeah. it's very personal for me i will never forget here on this podcast when i was interviewing ron tebow who had been i mean the guy he's a tough dude he's seen a lot you know he shared the story of how he lost his arm in a farming accident when he was young lots of other tough he's a tough farmer who's been through the ringer yeah yet to watch him start to choke up as we were talking here on the podcast mm -hmm. about some calves and a snowstorm yeah. and he was trying to save them and he saved a bunch of them, but he yeah. couldn't save all of them and it yeah. still tore them up. Like you can't say that somebody like that doesn't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, you know, when these people that are sitting in, in the suburbs, they're over there in Olympia or Renton or Seattle. And when they're sitting in their house and they're enjoying a, a cocktail <laughs> and it's warm and it's dry and my wife and I, her, her dad, our hired people, we're out there bedding our cattle down because we've had, you know, unexpected snowstorm. And we're out there in the dark yeah. trying to keep our cattle comfortable and happy. I guess I get a little peeved when people pass judgment sitting on yeah. the ivory tower. Yeah. So that's, I just keep on circling back to it. And I hate to just keep on banging this drum, but like, this is our livelihood, and if we're not taking care of our livestock, if we're not taking care of the land, we're not in business. Well, thanks for sharing your story. Well, thanks and, for having me on. And as I always say at the end of these, I mean, I thank people for their story, but it, I always think the more important thing is thanks for feeding us. I absolutely love feeding the world. It is such an honor and such a privilege, and I appreciate this time. You know, Thanks for letting me get on here. Oh, and, yeah kind of ramble a little bit but this has been a lot of fun so i appreciate it thank you well, so much and i appreciate again all those <laughs> nights out in the cold and the snow and the dark making sure the animals are well cared for and that you're producing beef because i love yeah. going to the store and getting yeah. washington grown beef perfect best in the world eat beef this is the real food real people podcast these are the stories of the people who grow your food 